0: This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health and holistic care community to talk about different mental health issues and treatment modalities. Now, guest opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. At Nomina, we treat complex, treatment-resistant mental health and addiction, so we know the importance of making exceptional mental health accessible to everyone. And with that, today's guest is Lisa Calco, who is here to talk to us about cannabis and psychosis and schizoaffective disorder. So let's welcome Lisa. Welcome back, Lisa. It's good to see you again. Good to be here. Thank you. We are talking about uh, cannabis and psychosis. And I'm just going to let you do an introduction because we talked a little bit off camera about how you're seeing more of it at the center these days.
1: Yeah. And so some of the things that we know, just even in terms of the research, is that about one in 200 people will be affected by some sort of psychosis throughout their lifetime. And sometimes that can just be on a lower level scale. Sometimes that can be more, you know, psychotic breaks or psychotic presentation that is really scary for them and their families. We're also seeing a lot of more chronic cannabis users coming in. And so You know, one of the big things we used to hear even 10 years ago in a lot of addiction circles was that, you know, cannabis use was considered to be not harmful or was considered to be helpful and a much lower intervention than, say, even pharmaceuticals. However, what we're discovering with the legalization of cannabis, at least here in Canada, is that it is becoming more and more accessible and more and more frequently used. Alongside that, we're seeing especially users under the age of 16 or more, um, even just, you know, younger developing brains who are using cannabis regularly are increasing the risk for schizoaffective or schizophrenic presentations because their developing brains just cannot handle that type of frequent exposure. And so it is actually something that is quite harmful and something that as we see is quite addictive. So as I mentioned, people thought, oh no, it's safe. It's benign. It's legal. It's medical. It's all of those things and abused and or used to excess is also quite harmful. I've had my
0: struggles with addiction. <laughs> and from what I've heard, it's not, it's not the physiological part, but it's the mental, it's the pleasure centers and how it affects the brain. That's addictive then. Well, no, so it's both.
1: I mean, just in terms of the the pleasure centers of the brain are one factor, but it is also just, you know, kind of hijacking those, you know, receptors in the brain that has that innate reward response. But there is also that physiological development to it as well. And so some people do become reliant on cannabis for anxiety reduction or other symptom management. And similar to any drug, Over a period of time, people do experience physical withdrawal markers. So now there's a whole series of new medications that are being used. Gabapentin, for example, off-label is used to treat uh, cannabis use withdrawal. And in fact, we've heard from some clients who have experienced that that cannabis withdrawal is even more powerful or more painful than going through, say, alcohol withdrawal. Just in terms of the physical body responsivity to it. That said, you know it's not as lethal as the alcohol withdrawal could be, you know, can we know that is something that humans could die from, um, if not managed or treated properly. And, you know, cannabis withdrawal is, albeit very painful and uncomfortable, isn't in that same lethality, but it still does have that physical dependence component to it.
0: And how does psychosis present in someone who is addicted to cannabis?
1: <laughs> so... To answer your question about psychosis, it is specifically something that we would see characterized as just disruptions in a person's thoughts or perceptions. And so what it means is it really makes it difficult for them to understand what is real and what isn't. And so we know that these are, you know, experienced in different ways. And sometimes it can be seeing things, hearing things, uh, believing things that aren't real Or having strange and kind of random thoughts about um, things that are not actually happening around you and behaviors and emotions in response to it. In these particular regards, you know, we always say that it doesn't matter if it's real or it's not. The brain believes it's real and it responds to it as if it's a genuine threat. And so that's something that we want to be aware of just when we're working with people who have psychotic experiences or you know psychosis or in a psychosis state um because it's something that they believe what's happening around them, is real, and their body and brain will respond to that in order to try and help keep them safe. There's a lot of things that can trigger psychosis it's not just cannabis, but you know just looking at that like sometimes it could just be a physical illness or injury like If somebody has a really severe fever, they can actually go into states of psychosis. If there's a head injury or something, they can go into states of psychosis. We see it a lot of times with trauma. So a lot of people have experienced trauma will have, um, you know, those experiences where they're just their brain is so wired to be acute and aware that they can be perceiving things that may not necessarily be taking in all of the evidence around them to really help balance that perspective out. Recreational drugs, you know, and that's not just cannabis, um, but looking at just even some, you know, other party drugs like MDMA or something, they can also trigger psychosis. Alcohol induced hallucinations can trigger psychosis. And sadly, even our prescribed medications can induce psychosis. So there's a lot of things that can happen that will, you know, kind of affect our brain to optimize itself. And usually going into a state of psychosis is your brain's way of trying to keep you safe and optimize itself. So it's not necessarily something that I look at as saying, oh, wow, you know, like this is a bad person, rather, I usually look at that and understand, wow, somebody's brain is really overwhelmed and not able to just absorb what's around it. And it's a good indication that we need to try and do something to help them. Some early warning signs to keep an eye out, even if whether it be from cannabis, from other substances, um, or just general life, you know, trauma-based responses, just kind of paying attention for You know, just is there a drop in grades or work performance or ability to function in daily living? Um, You know, some other things you might notice that they have trouble really thinking clearly or concentrating. If the person you're with or the person you're spending time with that you may, you know, have a lot of um, experience with might start, you know, presenting with things that are just not in touch with reality. Or you're noticing that, you know, you're in the same room, you're having the same conversation, but it seems like they're having these really kind of disrupted states, it's definitely something to pay attention to. We also notice a really strong rise in suspiciousness or paranoid ideas. Um, they can be really uneasy around others because of their paranoia even. And again, that's where we link it back to that really trauma-based state. Because when in a state of activation, the brain wants to keep itself safe. And so it doesn't trust the people around them. It, you know, The brain is kind of looking at, What is going to happen? Who's going to do this? You know, we start to have these developed ideas that in our minds are real. They make perfect sense. But to somebody who's there observing the facts differently, they may not seem as in touch with reality. We also know that, you know, there can be withdrawing socially and, you know, just spending a lot more time alone when they're experiencing that. And again, that's because when we're paranoid or we're worried or we're seeing all of this negativity We tend to want to socially withdraw so that we're not impacting or hurting the people around us. And it's also quite devastating, even when we're in states of psychosis, to be hearing, seeing things, having these kind of memories or these thoughts. And our brain is totally overwhelmed that the first thing it wants to do is just withdraw and isolate to help relax that neurochemistry. But, in fact, all it does is kind of like taking a magnifone and putting it in somebody's head and it goes on loudspeaker. And so that's why when we're looking at that, those early warning signs are so important because there's a big, big link between suicidality and psychosis in a way that you know we understand or we know that those who are struggling with those really profound levels of mental health distress are more likely, to be able to die by suicide, to die by suicide.
0: Yeah, I have to be careful how I say this to protect anonymity. But let's just say a friend of a friend's uh, child went through psychosis and needed inpatient treatment due to cannabis. And my first thought was, oh, I don't know that that's cannabis. Like, how can how can cannabis do that? But uh, now it makes it makes a lot more a lot more sense. And, and this person had been through a traumatic event, had been um, smoking a lot of weed in a short amount of time and was fairly young. And and yeah, I ended up in the hospital. And you know, the, the hard part is, is what we know, is that it's about
1: five times higher a risk of in a person or sorry, psychosis is about five times higher a risk in a person who uses cannabis, and especially with high THC potency. So the THC specifically is something that we know affects brain development, and especially in a lot of young adolescents. And so as I mentioned earlier, we see a lot of adolescents using this. And that's kind of why it used to be believed as like a gateway drug. It's not necessarily a gateway drug as much as it is a drug, medical, legal, or otherwise. It's still something that we see those tobacco related products, a lot of those THC related products that start to affect the brain's neurochemistry and how it's developing. And as a result of that, it is something that is highly, highly effective at relaxing nervous systems, you know, treating even some anxiety and depressive symptoms, you know, just general support, you know, can improve sleep. So it's not to say that THC or CBD, cannabis doesn't have an effective medical use. But it's like all effective medicines, you know, Dilaudid is legal, ketamine is legal, you know, fentanyl is legal, all really, really valuable medicinal purposes. And when abused, have catastrophic outcomes. We're seeing the same with marijuana. And so it's not to say that it's not a valuable, you know, safer product, but when not controlled or understood, it actually can be quite harmful and quite addictive.
0: This was very eye-opening. There's a fellow that um, I know from the recovery community who was there for marijuana addiction. And I thought, really? <laughs> but, but now I, I suddenly can, I can see it. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I think the thing of it is, is that we are discovering more and more so many of us who have been affected by somebody who has a schizophrenic presentation or a schizoaffective presentation or a psychotic episode, as I said earlier, you know, about one in 200 people are going to experience it. And that's quite profound when I think about even my own family system and the number of people who have affected or who have experienced that, um, you know, again, it's something that is far more prevalent than what we've previously talked about. And all the more reason I think it's so valuable to get that information out there, because we're seeing so many young developing brains be really impacted and profoundly impacted by something that seems really benign. And so in that regard, it's quite scary for me. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's scary for me, too. I I don't I don't think this will go in the video, but that's how Taylor was killed is he was in a psychotic like he was in psychosis and. Um, drug psychosis and but then again they argued that in court where okay was he still five days later when he killed his parents right so but yeah psychosis was a big part of it and truthfully he probably was still
1: five days later and the hard part is is that you know and I think this will be a valuable piece to include um, in the video is just that oftentimes when people are in psychosis it can be perceived or misunderstood as just behavioral problems, you know, that they have poor boundaries, poor parenting, they didn't have, you know, um, healthy supports, or they're just, you know, dysregulated, they're, they're acting out. And, you know, there's some really marked differences. And oftentimes, when people are in states of psychosis, they will have very strong efforts to contain it and to minimize it around other people, which makes it harder to know or to observe. And so when we see that, that, anxiety, that activated anxiety response comes with or can be coupled with, you know, just those stressors, those life stressors that tend to push people over into states of psychosis and they may be able to kind of regulate out of them. But we've seen, you know, very frequently where people are sent um, and oftentimes turned away by care systems that are just seeing them as being reactive or um, just struggling with behavioral responses or, you know, having the clarity to be able to attend to their specific behaviors. However, in those moments, they're really, their brain is just offline and it's not able to actually reconcile what they've done or recall it with clarity. And that's really quite problematic because it's not necessarily that people are actively trying to lie to us. It's that their brain is really trying to protect them from the overwhelming states it experiences. That helps a lot, actually. One of the questions you asked is, you know, kind of the impacts of marijuana on the brain. And so I found this great study that basically looks at on brain scans, the hippocampus, hippocampus, which is a part of the brain, it actually shows up smaller for people who use cannabis heavily and over a long time compared to people who do not. So what that means is they're actually going to have a hard time learning and remembering new information. So we kind of link that to the piece about, as I said, in those psychotic states or even the ability to recall their specific acts. It's, again, because of that part of the brain that would be used in storing new information, it has a harder time trying to consolidate it. Now, if we imagine that being linked with high activation states of arousal, Our brain is designed to protect us so that we can't recall those high activated states of arousal because we're acting in ways that are not necessarily logical or they're actually considered to be illogical. And so in those particular regards, what we want to know is just that there is a distinct understanding that when there is that chronic cannabis use, there are actual brain changes happening.
0: So how would you treat first... Uh, the schizoaffectiveness versus the cannabis addiction. So when it comes to kind of, we'll first start off with just kind
1: of diagnosing schizoaffective, which is really quite challenging. As I said, when we're looking at trying to understand if somebody in an active psychotic state, are they struggling otherwise? Is there other disorders that may be happening at the same time, um, such as a substance use disorder that needs to be managed first so that we know the presentation is not necessarily related to the substances they're on. Then following that, we need to kind of rule in, rule out symptoms. And so, first, you know, it's kind of looking at having your physician or, you know, your a psychiatrist, another medical professional do a physical screen. Because that can really help to rule in or rule out um, any sort of specific cause symptoms, such as even just changes in, I don't know, thiamine levels or something, or your magnesium that may be contributing. A lot of those can kind of help to, you know, just doing blood panels, doing, um, you know, they may even request an MRI or a CT scan. Those are not required if we have a good body of information relating to the psychosis or the presentation itself, but can be helpful. Then we want to have a full proper kind of psychiatric exam. And that's where we can start by just observing, you know, the mental health status, overall appearance, the demeanor, asking really specific questions about your thoughts, your moods, any sort of delusions or hallucinations, substance use, and any sort of potential for suicide. It will also likely involve a family history to see if there is any other family um, in your in your genome that may have that kind of specific experience as well. And it allows us to connect with your trusted people to say what are they seeing? Because sometimes they can see things we're not seeing ourselves. and when we're in those activated states, we're not going to be hearing that information. And then lastly, there's you know very specific DSM-5 criteria for schizoaffective presentations or any sort of psychosis that we can use to try and help determine if this is something that is happening in, in particular. It's important to kind of understand that the treatment for psychosis versus schizoaffective presentation versus schizophrenia can be different, and there are some similarities. And so the first thing we look at is an antipsychotic. An antipsychotic is something that we'd want to have in order to help your brain just kind of level off the delusions and the hallucinations. So we want to stabilize that as much as we can. And there is really not a lot that we can do externally that will be as effective as an antipsychotic in these specific realms. Secondary to that is if it is something that is more of a schizoaffective presentation, so like I said, depressive symptoms and or kind of those bipolar type symptoms. Again, we want to really treat the highs and lows and help level off that brain chemistry. So it has more of a, a relaxed response or a consistent response rather. And that's where we'll look at that. And you know, your, your physician or the psychiatrist will work with you to develop a medication regime that is really specific to what they're seeing. And this is again, one of those disorders that really does benefit. From pharmacotherapy. So having that adjunct medicine to be able to support and stabilize so that we can do the last piece of the treatment, which is integrated psychotherapy. And so the integrative psychotherapy really does become so, so important with just working with, you know, Helping you to develop new life routine, building trusting relationships, starting to understand your condition, whether it be through psychoeducation, um working on thought patterns that are relating to, say, the paranoid features or other things, helping to develop um you know functional life skills. And family therapy is super important because the family system needs to know how do we support our loved one? What are the signs and symptoms we need to be looking out for? How do we start to integrate? you know, these routines to help them thrive and function. A big, big part of the psychotherapy, both for the individual and the family is what we call life skills training. That kind of integrative life skills training is so, so important for the brain. Because again, if we go back to that really kind of um, smaller hippocampus, we want to kind of help to, I keep saying hippocampus. If we go back to that smaller hippocampus, we really want to start to help it grow and stimulating it by trying to help it practice, consolidate new information. And one of the ways we can do that is by stabilizing our routine and then introducing elements that help us to practice learning, growing at a low and slow pace. So it really becomes important that we focus on some social skills, training, working on social interactions, starting to develop safety in groups, new activities but also having a baseline of daily activities. So things that we do consistently around the house with our families or loved ones that are very routine, very consistent, that really help us to have that solid foundation of I've got my baseline, I've got my trusted people, and now I'm going to introduce new things to help me grow.
0: We did a video with the BC Schizophrenia Society, and I'm actually going to link that below because they were huge on family supports that that is so important to have that community around you. Absolutely. And it
1: really does become such an important piece when we're looking at understanding that oftentimes when we hear loved ones expressing voices, those paranoid features, those kinds of concerns, our brain goes to schizophrenia as a primary. And sometimes it's not. And, you know, the other part to it is, is although schizophrenia is, is a a lifetime condition, it is also something that can be treatable and treatable doesn't mean that it's ever going to go away because our brain is now going to be wired a certain way, but we can improve the functioning. And I think very similarly, you know, even looking at schizoaffective disorders the same way, they have a higher chance of going into remission with good treatment and, and supportive resourcing and all of those pharmacotherapy options but there are something that are always going to be there where our brain is always going to be a bit more sensitive to it and could react and we just want to make sure that again we have that healthy foundation and routine to help ensure that it is safe
0: anything that you wanted to add in closing i mean
1: i just i think the thing i would add in closing is really just normalizing the fact that it's scary it's hard it's hard for the individual and for the family system and just acknowledging that you know in these states You know, there's so many layers to it that we can appreciate why it is so challenging because we just want to do the best that we can to help our humans. And they're going to be minimizing their experience because it is so distressing. And so my suggestion to all of my families is always, if your spidey sense is telling you something's off with your loved one, trust that, you know, they're going to react. They'll be angry. They'll be upset. They're going to be volatile in some regards, but trust that because trusting that may just be the thing that will help you save their life.
0: Okay well thank you so much Lisa I I really appreciate this 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 was a big one for me it answered a lot of questions that I had based on my personal experience so.